We are uh, continuing this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark, but rather than just jump in uh, this morning, I thought I'd take a moment to say why we're doing this, why I am doing this. Uh, there is one figure in human history. It just needs to be said periodically who was like no other. There's one person in human history who stands above all others. There's one person in human history whose uniqueness and whose influence, just as a matter of history, far surpasses any other person in history. He's been called the smartest man who ever lived, and not only did this person exhibit a greater understanding of human beings and the human condition and our desperate need for help, guidance, truth, grace, patience, love, and mercy, but he also was the manifest presence of that for us and for the world. There's one person who perfectly balances and has balanced and will balance in history both truth and grace. One person who takes seriously your sin and mine and yet who doesn't turn away from us or crush us with justice that we deserve. One person who over and over again comforts the afflicted but also afflicts the comfortable. One person who calls out selfish ways and then offers himself as a ransom in our place. Since the beginning of the Christian movement, Christians have called this person Lord and understood him to be both fully human and yet the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, unlike any other. He is exactly who we need. He is exactly who the world needs. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so we're gathered here this morning because that's not because that's what we've always done, not because we don't have anything else to do, not because these pews are particularly comfortable. They're not. But we're gathered here this morning to draw into his presence. We're not here necessarily to know the Bible better as literature or history or book or as information but we are here to be drawn into the presence of the one who is the most unique being who has ever lived. We are here to allow ourselves and to present ourselves as individuals and as a community to him and for him and in that be shaped by him. We've been in Mark a long time and we'll be in Mark for a little while longer. I don't want us to get into the rhythm of thinking it's the same old, it's another, it's not. We're here because Mark is, or we're in Mark, because Mark is the earliest and the latest, the oldest of all of the testaments written about Jesus, the first of the gospels. And so it testifies in a unique way to and about this person around whom our lives are shaped. The Gospel of Mark has rough edges. We've already seen a bunch of those. It has sharp corners, Mark did. And accounts that challenge our modern sensibilities in the way that we want things to be, the way that I want things to be. And the Gospel of Mark is these things, and we believe that it is also at the same time inspired by God, which means it's uh, led by God, nurtured by God, presented by God, a gift of God, directed by God, shaped by God the God of the universe. And so our tradition has said for centuries, it is useful and authoritative for all matters of faith and life, for all matters of faith and life. 
And so we read, not just because that's what we do on Sunday morning, but for these reasons we read and for these reasons we listen. But first, let's pray. God, help us to set aside ourselves to be free of distraction and anxiety as we open your word together. Help us to be attentive to your word and to your will and to your spirit to shape us. We ask that uh, you would give us ears that are good to hear, eyes that can see, hearts that are good soil. Plant within us things that will bring you joy and that will bring you glory. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. In the name of Christ the Lord, amen. So we catch up with Jesus in Jerusalem this morning. He's in Jerusalem. He is in the temple doing what Mark so often describes Jesus doing, teaching. So reading from uh, Matthew, or Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 38, listen closely. This is God's word. As Jesus taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. And remember now that Jesus is surrounded by the teachers of the law. He's not talking about anyone behind their back. He is surrounded uh, in a packed temple courtyard by, among other people, teachers of the law, also known as scribes. We don't use the word scribe, the biblical word, so often because it sounds like just a secretary, but scribes were more than that. They were teachers of the law. And he taught Jesus, and as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law among you. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. That's how and who they were. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents, calling his disciples to him. And this is Mark's way of saying, you remember over and over, He's teaching now his disciples. He's teaching now specifically the church. He's speaking specifically to you and me. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave, they gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. And honestly, frankly, this passage is often read and preached from during the time of year when churches are planning their budgets for the next year, which is what we're kind of beginning to do right now in this process at this time of year for us, which Honda and Ann spoke to some and alluded to. And it's valid and it's legitimate and it's appropriate to read this passage at this time. We just happen to be here or actually close to here in Mark and so we're here this morning. But there is more to this passage than simply fundraising, far more. Jesus continues to speak against those entrenched in religion and the proud. And Jesus continues to disrupt systems of religion, pry into the traditions of religion, exposing realities that had evolved over centuries, often 
into matters of injustice. Jesus' presence in the temple with his condemnation uh, began with his condemnation of the buyers and sellers for the animal sacrifices that we read about last week. And it ends with his condemnation of the teachers of the law and their profiting off of the poor. I'll say that again. Jesus' presence in the temple began last week we read as he arrives in Jerusalem with his condemnation of the buyers and sellers for the animal sacrifices, and it ends with his condemnation of the teachers of the law and their profiting off of the poor. We must set aside in some ways our images and ideas of Jesus as meek and mild. Jesus is revolutionary and reformer. He is disruptor and agent of change. His presence in the temple began with his condemnation of buyers and sellers for the animal sacrifices, and it ends now with his commendation of a widow who sacrifices her all for God. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted and respected in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayer. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus spoke truth to power. Jesus forced people to face the things that they and we often don't want to face. The Sanhedrin or the Jewish ruling council was made up of men who for a variety of reasons were mostly well off. Maybe most of them had inherited that wealth, been born into wealthy families. But the teachers of the law, in contrast to the members of the Sanhedrin, often were not typically wealthy people, at least in the beginning. They got what they had through, do through donations to the temple treasury. They depended on the giving of the people, much like the tribe of Levi had done throughout Israel's history, having no land of their own, no resources of their own, but being supported by everyone else. But sometimes teachers of the law in Jesus' age, well, they sometimes got rich off of the giving of the poor. And so Jesus said, not only do they perform, a sh per perform and show off with their lengthy prayers in public, but they also devour widows' houses or households these men will be punished most severely. As they encouraged the poor to give, they were getting rich. And now comes the really interesting part in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. There were in the temple at the time these 13 large chests that maybe looked like this if you can see them. And, uh, on top of the chest were these low or uh, long shofar-shaped or trumpet-shaped metal receptacles that led into those boxes or those chests. And this is where Jesus was. This is where Jesus positions himself. He sits down near some of those giving boxes and did what sometimes Jesus did. He watched. And because people did not write checks and there was no giving, no Zelle, no PayPal, no Venmo, no scheduled ACH transfers, Jesus saw. In fact, everyone saw, but now especially Jesus saw. Today the norm is anonymous giving and in many ways we prefer to protect people's privacy in giving and be private, tight-lipped, confidential. 
anonymous about our own giving. And just so you know, a reminder that no one knows what you give, I don't know. Just two uh, people have access to that information in our church out of necessity. But today the norm is anonymous giving. We want others to be anonymous, we want ourselves to be anonymous. After all, we do not give, we should not give to impress other people, but to express our gratitude to God, our love for God, so said Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. We value anonymity, but that wasn't a thing in Jesus' day. It couldn't be, it was hard to be, there wasn't a way for it to be, that's not how things worked. A person in Jesus' day didn't receive a giving statement for the temple treasury. The temple's finance officer at the end of the month or at the end of the year, instead what a person received or what they got or what they subtly sought in their giving since they, there were no income tax benefits to giving, what they received or what they got or sometimes what they sought was instead attention, fanfare, praise, noise. Which is why Jesus said elsewhere not to blow one's trumpet which looks a lot like the top of those giving boxes and chests when one gives. That made sense to people. But up steps Jesus, whom we believe will one day judge the quick and the dead. We say that every month in the Apostles' Creed. Up steps Jesus to the area of the giving boxes and he positions himself in such a way that he can see what people give and to some degree everyone could hear what people were giving as their coins went through the metal part of the receptacle and as they landed in that big box on other people's coins. This was a very public activity and so Rabbi Jesus uses it as a teaching moment. Many rich people threw in large amounts but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a cent, Mark says. The Greek word here for coin is lepton which literally means thin, as thin as you can get, or small. It was the smallest coin in circulation at the time, worth about a fifth of a cent, a fifth of a penny, one 128th of a denarius, which was a working wage for one person for one day. Basically nothing. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and threw in two very small copper coins. Calling his disciples to himself, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. And Mark doesn't tell us how Jesus knew what he knew about this woman, and none of that was really the point. Rather, the point was, or the points were, who this woman was, the way in which this woman gave, how she gave, what she gave, and why she gave. For starters, her giving in Mark's narrative was contrasted with the giving of the rich. On the surface, the giving of the rich seemed to be more important. They put in large amounts, they made a lot of noise. Literally, it goes like this. When the wealthy people came up to the giving boxes. They put in large amounts, they made a lot of noise. It was the rich who for all intents and purposes probably funded the temple institution and its activities and its upkeep. They kept the temple going. And everybody probably knew that. 
But the truth and reality is that God doesn't need, he didn't need, and he doesn't need any of their money. It all already belonged and belongs to God. God has all that he needs. That's just a central Christian doctrine. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need your stuff or my stuff. But what God really wants is us. God can have anything God wants. But what God really wanted and what God really wants is people, people's hearts, our being, our presence, our devotion, our relationship. The rich gave out of their abundance and they, after they were done giving, still had an abundance. The rich gave out of their wealth and after they were done walking by the giving box, they were still wealthy. But the poor widow gave all that she had, she was all in. And so in God's kingdom, this poor widow, Jesus says, gave more. And more is emphatic in the Greek narrative in the text, grammatically. This is the economy of the kingdom. In God's kingdom, in the kingdom Jesus talks so often about, it was this woman who gave more. Her giving was contrasted with the giving of the rich. Second, her giving expressed love for God. Just two sections earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 12, we jumped over it, we'll go back to it. Jesus has gotten into a discussion with another teacher of the law who had been hearing him teach, and the teacher of the law says to Jesus, of all the commands, you seem to know the scriptures, of all 613 commands in the Old Testament, which one is the most important? And you know that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and then Leviticus, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and wealth, and resources, and stuff, and assets, the breadth of who you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our love and our affections cannot be bifurcated and put into silos, though we sometimes do that in our minds. We've got our faith here and our work there and our family here and our money, assets, resources, checkbook, account, here. And we sometimes operate in our minds as if those things are not integrated across our lives, but they are. And so to love God and as God through Moses instructed in the book of Deuteronomy and as Jesus quoted and affirmed is to love God with all of what one has, all of who one is, every element over which one has authority or dominion or influence or say or direction. We don't know much about this woman, but we do know that she loved God without reservation, without pretension, without hesitation. Her giving expressed what Jesus and the this, this teachers of the law had just been talking about, what it means to love God with all of one's heart and mind and soul and strength and resources and assets and everything. Third, her giving expressed faith in God. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. And this is not to suggest that a person should necessarily give everything they had to the temple or a church or to anything or anyone else. In this life and in this world, we need certain basic necessities, food, shelter, clothes, transportation, healthcare is nice. And some of us have the responsibility and some of us have the joy of providing for others, for children, for parents, for other family members, for neighbors, for friends, for special friends, for people in crisis, for people who for a variety of reasons cannot take care of themselves, provide for themselves. And so just to be clear, the point of this passage is not necessarily 
prescriptive but descriptive pointing out jesus pointing out what it looks like to have faith in god to trust god to be dependent on god to really 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 believe god at a minimum it also calls each one of us to a new or higher level of faith of trust of dependence on the one from whom as we sing all blessings flow forgiving expressed faith or trust in god and then fourth her giving served as a foreshadowing of jesus himself who shortly hereafter in fact we're at the end this is the end of chapter 12 the beginning of chapter 13 begins this rolling movement in the gospel of mark that's irreversible jesus in jerusalem and now the cross is imminent Forgiving served as foreshadowing of Jesus himself who shortly to come would give everything he had, everything he was, his whole life as a ransom for the world for the sins of many. And so this passage is helpful for us at this season, not only in our study of Mark's gospel and our understanding of Jesus, but helpful for us in this season that we're in as a congregation and as people. This passage is the end of Jesus' teaching. We're gonna go back and fill in some other things in the coming weeks. But this passage is the last thing that Jesus teaches about in the Gospel of Mark, the last thing he has to say in the way of instruction to his disciples. And it's no, no surprise that Jesus finishes his public ministry talking about money. Half of his parables have been about money. One-sixth of everything that he says is about money. Only the kingdom of God gets more attention than Jesus, from Jesus, than money. And we know that Jesus wasn't obsessed with money. He wasn't a collector of things. He didn't build great wealth. He had, as far as we know, nothing or next to nothing himself. But he recognized the spiritual power of money, that money was a spiritual entity, that money had sway over our lives, over our hearts, over our minds, over all that we have and are and with which we can love the Lord our God. I'm encouraged that in the, this passage and in the Gospel of Mark, when you think about it, it's not the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin or the teachers of the law or men for that matter. Who are the heroes in Mark's gospel? It's not people who have a lot of money. Who is the hero in this passage? I don't know about you, but what I've read and I sort of plays out as true in my life sometimes is we give people esteem based on how much money they have or how much money we perceive that they have. Uh, the kingdom of God almost works in exactly the opposite way. This poor widow of all people is the hero of Jesus' final and climactic teaching for his disciples, for the church. It is significant that Mark records that. And so to uh, dovetail on what Honda spoke about earlier, what does this mean for us in our giving, in our giving, in our expression of faith in God, in our loving God with all of our hearts, minds, 
souls, and strength. How do we contrast with the kingdom and that to which God is calling us? One thing that's interesting about this passage isn't, is the contrast between the, not the portion that people give, the amount, but the proportion that people give, the percentage. It's not insignificant that God calls us not to big giving, but to generous giving. There's a, uh, the woman's two coins reminded me of a story. Uh, a child was, uh, a little boy was going to Sunday school with his parents going to church and he was gonna go to Sunday school first and then they were gonna meet up and worship afterwards in the basket uh, that Jim talked about with the big long stick or however they were gonna pass it was coming around. And they prepared him, they wanted to teach, them, teach him about stewardship and giving and finances and generosity. So they gave him two quarters at breakfast that Sunday morning, walking to church together. Uh, he dropped one of the quarters, it went into a grate in the sidewalk, it was gone forever. He said, oh, wow, there went God's quarter. <laughs> Could that have been you and me? Even if the woman gave one of her two coins, she still would have outgiven every one of us here, no? And so we have much to learn about proportional giving, about generous giving, about how much to give. And the scriptures may or may not be clear depending on your reading of the scriptures, but they always call us to greater faith in God and to greater trust in God and to greater generosity and to living in such a way that our whole lives love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and everything else and love our neighbors as ourselves. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, about giving. He wrote, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. It's just a hard question, hard to know, hard to land on a number or a way. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our, expendi if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, we are probably giving way too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. They ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Maybe wisdom. Some of you uh, know a little bit about, or maybe know a lot about John D. Rockefeller, born in the 1830s uh, to a poor family, one of a handful of kids, uh, gets into business early on as an entrepreneurial sort of guy. Uh, not too long after, he uh, controls 90% of the oil industry in the United States, becomes the richest person on the face of the earth. At one point, his personal wealth was equal to 3% of the gross domestic product of the United States. For much of his life, he hovered around one or 2%. He spent the last 40 years, praise God of his life, being an innovator in philanthropy. But earlier on in his life, someone asked him, how much is enough? And you know what he answered, just a little more. Everyone's gotta figure out 
all of this for ourselves. But may this poor widow be for us a model and an inspiration and a teacher. And may God's kingdom come in our lives and in our hearts and in our households as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, money's uh, kind of a funny thing. Sometimes makes us feel awkward, especially talking about it openly and publicly. We thank you that the scriptures are not devoid of this subject, but rather Jesus was uh, often talking about things that maybe we aren't quick to talk about. You know each of our hearts, you know each of our minds, you know each of our bank accounts, you know everything there is to know. And we know that you don't need what you've entrusted to us, it's already yours. But guide us, direct us, draw us into yourself. Help us to grow in love and in faith and obedience. For the glory of your kingdom and the coming of your kingdom. Amen.